it was about some three years before that that Cricket Australia had announced his ambition to fill out the MPG. And three years ago, that was almost unimaginable. I think a lot of the players themselves had a few doubts because everyone by then was just used to playing in empty stadium. It, it just didn't seem realistic because you had 6,000 people come into a stadium, you'd be like, wow, what a incredible crowd. The 2016 T20 World Cup, which happened in India, I was at one of the games in Bangalore, I think it was New Zealand versus South Africa, if I'm not mistaken. And I think there were some 200 people at Chinnaswamy and I was like, wow, what crowd. You know, great atmosphere. <laughs> Going back to last year's final, I think one incredible thing was there were so many really young kids around and you could see how inspired they were like lots of girls and boys being completely inspired by these women and of course having Katy Perry play at the end helped Would that be the largest crowd though? 90,000? For any female sporting event for sure anything female related for sure yeah I'm glad I mean I'm hoping I'm hearing the ticket number um, you know over the past couple of days is going up steadily and especially with who's now playing, which is so exciting. I mean, that's the biggest cricket game in the world right there, female or not. Some of the most interesting conversations happen over a cup of coffee, and there are many people doing really interesting and cool things with their lives. You can't have coffee with all of them, but you might just be able to interview some of them. That's why I started this podcast, to have conversations with people I find interesting. I'm your host, Pawan, and welcome to Coffee by Two, a place where interesting conversations happen over a podcast. My guest on this episode of Coffee by Two is a sports writer who has been writing on women's cricket since 2014. She is also the co-author of The Fire Burns Blue, a magnum opus on women's cricket. Welcome to the show, Karunya. Thanks for having me on the show, Pavan. Glad to finally be able to do this. I think we've been talking about it for a while. I've tried last week as well, so I'm glad we can have a chat now. Thanks, Karunya. This episode has been a long time in the making. The first question I want to start with is what's been making news recently with regards to the women's cricket team and that's the selection of the coach. Ramesh Pawar is back and W.B. Raman who had a reasonably successful run was ousted. If memory serves me right, Ramesh Pawar had differences of opinion with Mithali Raj a couple of years back and was replaced by Raman and now he's back in the fray. So what is your take on this whole medical round and there is also a section of people who think that it's high time that the women's cricket team has a women's coach what is your take on that as well uh, i think there are so many issues at play here okay i'm going to try to break it down one by one i may not even be able to cover everything because honestly there's so much in this issue of a coach appointment which is sheer speculation it was speculation two years ago and it is speculation now the issue is that everything around the women's team has very little transparency whether that's selection or appointment and to be honest this is not just the case with the women's team we recently saw a men's selection as well that went off without a press conference because there are so many men's matches happening it's 
a little harder to say why did you pick this person and not the other person because apart from you know the top handful you can very easily pick two very good men's team and there'll be some selections where people will be like okay i don't agree with this but for the most part you can justify all of that now what happens with the women's selection is there's next to no matches happening there are no club games there are only a handful of one day games that happen once a year maybe some t20s and so much of this happens outside of media glare so much of this happens outside of a lot of people involved in the selection also being able to fully follow this so when these choices are made there's so little information to even question all of this they look odd but then no one's coming out none of the selectors are coming out and you know explaining why they did what they did and no one else has these numbers with which to say you know but this is why you should pick this person or not pick this person so it's just happening all in one vacuum so that's the selection part of it and i bring that up because one of the things that has come up in this whole coach appointment issue is the fact that wb raman had some issues with the selection committee and didn't get the team he wanted etc etc and the first part is this issue of transparency and accountability starting with the bcci then you have the selection committee then you have the coaches themselves and the players in terms of accountability no one is being held really accountable and also it's difficult to hold them accountable because you haven't set the parameters in the first place so looking at it from the outside now what we have is a situation where we have a coach who led his team to the finals of a t20 world cup being told that's not good enough because you lost this other but did the coach at any point know what was expected of him over the next two years or the next three years no because he had a two year contract the, and then i think a week or so before i, I might be mistaken about the time but like like a week or a month or so before the south africa series he was told okay he has you know there's a series coming up and then you may have it he doesn't know if he's going to be in charge for the world cup so how is he going to plan for the world so all of that is involved because you don't have the parameters set in the first place in terms of the men's and men's versus women's coach i i think they did interview some female candidates but i don't think this is an issue of male versus female i think it was in 2017 sushara rote came in as the uh, coach just before the world cup which india did really well in and one of the reasons given at that point in time was that they wanted a men because the level of coaching among former players in india who used to be the coaches then was it was felt as it was not you know keeping par with the advances in the game so men who had played test cricket uh, who were part of these t20 league and who would be able to better provide these inputs it was said that the players themselves said that i think we this is what we need and to an extent that still remains the case there have been no uh, level 3 coaching for women in india if i'm not mistaken most of the players uh, most of the women former women who applied for this job if i'm not mistaken were all level 2 i might I, there might be some people have got an accreditation from outside india but i don't think so for the longest time there have been no level 3 coach for indian women and there really isn't that much opportunity for them to go abroad and get these uh, get these levels and just to give put this in context meg lanning who's the australian women's captain right now she just turned 29 she's already finished her level 3 coaching she's been able to use that coaching knowledge that she's got to manage her team and given that she's level 3 that means she's been doing this for you know the past 5 years or so so when she leaves cricket and someone says okay meg lanning can become a coach there is that body of work also that she can and there is that experience that she can build on in india we haven't had that yet unfortunately which isn't to say that we ha- we haven't had 
strong coaches. Some Indian women have coached teams outside of India as Bangladesh and within the domestic circuit itself, there is, you know, some of them are considered very good at what they do. But again, ideally, when you have a team and you give them a short-term goals and long-term goals, the idea is to find a coach that fits into all of this and, you know, you back them for that time to say, okay, this is the coach's vision, this is the board's vision and let's see where the trains shall meet. And I think what's been seen again and again is this complete dysfunctional system where there is no transparency and accountability. Do you think we missed an opportunity to build on that World Cup final in March 2020? We lost a massive opportunity. And uh, the worst part is it's not the first time it happened. India was in the final of the 2005 World Cup all those years ago. That was when the BCCI took over from this other body that was running women's cricket until then. That was the time where, again, things could have really gone up. Again, in 2017, when India and England played the 50-over World Cup final at Lords, and they managed to sell Lords out at that point in time, which was a massive deal again. That was when women's cricket really was set to take off. Then again, they had to wait, I think, six months to be able to play another international match. And as you said, after last March, when, again, it was a record crowd of 86,000 people who were at the MCG, and you had, you know, someone like Shafari Varma, who at 16, had become the number one T20 player during that tournament. It was incredible. I mean, it's almost inexcusable that they had to wait nearly a year, I, mean, I think one day less than a year, uh, just to make, you know, seem cosmetically okay. <laughs> but it was nearly a year they had to wait before they played another game. We saw like a half IPL, the Women's T20 Challenge happen where they spent more time in quarantine than actually playing. And that is held up as something that, see, this is what we're doing for women's cricket. And that's not right at all. The fact remains that for a year, there was no international cricket. And just take it a little beyond just the Indian system. I think this one year is really exposed to differences in treatment of women's sport around the country. Teams and countries that have been supporting women's sport have gone this extra distance to make sure that their female players are well taken care of and, you know, have matches to play despite everything. And then you have a lot of other nations where, you know, they're still waiting, you know, sitting at home and waiting to know what's next. You were there for that match. Can you just describe that day to us? Yeah, that day I think was just incredibly special. The atmosphere was completely electric. I mean, there was obviously a little uncertainty already, given that all the news of this coronavirus was uh, just about coming up. Uh, but the overall feeling was just one of anticipation that everyone was a part of something really momentous. So I think it was about some three years before that that Cricket Australia had announced this ambition to fill out the MPG. And three years ago, that was almost unimaginable. I think a lot of the players themselves had a few doubts because everyone by then was just used to playing in empty stadium. It, it just didn't seem realistic because you had 6,000 people come into a stadium, you'd be like, wow, what a incredible crowd. The 2016 T20 World Cup, which happened in India, I was at one of some of the games in Bangalore. I think it was New Zealand versus South Africa, if I'm not mistaken. And I think there were some 200 people at Chinnaswamy and I was like, wow, what crowd. You know, great atmosphere. <laughs> Going back to last year's final, I think one incredible thing was there were so many really young kids around and you could see how inspired they were like lots of girls and boys being completely inspired by these women and of course having Katy Perry play at the end helped 
Yeah, but again, as I said, at the same time, there was it was this reminder of the gulf that exists between what a country like Australia does to promote women's sport because it was promotion was a big part of it. It took work to get to that day, and there were people involved that were in tears. I mean, I was close to tears to see the, the incredible potential that you could feel at that point. You know, there was this energy going on. So yeah, just in the standard of play and in the attitude of Australia that day, I think it was something really memorable. So do you think India will cross the finish line the next time around? I think it will need work. So the Indian women's cricket team has always been really talented, and it's a lot of very natural talent. A lot of players might say that they've even succeeded despite the system rather than because of the system. So if we can get that system in place, then I think um, it will be easier for them to cross that hurdle. I'm a little afraid that we'll go the New Zealand way. So if people are you know, really following women's cricket, New Zealand were one of the, they're the only team other than Australia and England that have won the World Cup. And just for a number of reasons, even though there is really super talented team, for a number of reasons they are falling back where you have someone like in India and even a lot of other nations going ahead. And given how fast the pace of development in Australia and England is, I'm worried that India is just going to fall further behind unless they do something about it. And by do something, I mean both governance and grassroots changes and like looking at elite performance by itself. Saying, okay, what do these girls need? Right? Or do they need a like, you know, sports psychologist? Do they need more matches? Do they need a specific skills such as power hitting, where the game is going now. I mean, some of it is happening. I mean, I think it might have to happen a little faster if we have to see that uh, that gold medal. Having said that, you know, you have players like Harman and Shefali is pretty, uh, all of them who can change a match on their day. So, uh, Harman's 171 in the uh, 2017 semi-final against Australia was a magnificent inning. Uh, I mean, it's one of the best ODI innings by an Indian given everything that was at stake. So we will continue to have innings like that and it may just happen on the day of the final. But I think we may need a little more work before. We can confidently say that we are the favourites for Okay. The Indian board is the richest board in cricket. And for context, when the men's team won the first T20 World Cup in 2007, it led to the IPL, which is one of the most cash-rich entities in all of sport. Is there a gulf in the administration when it comes to women's cricket? I've spent a fair bit of time thinking about it, honestly, and I don't know if I have one answer. One thing is, the men's game in India, in recent times at least, has never needed any work to get people to the ground. Even if the whole stadium experience is terrible, people are still going to go to the stadium. You know, despite how expensive all these TV deals are, you still have more and more sponsors and brands coming on board. The men's cricket team is just such a powerful brand that the BCCI doesn't need to do any marketing, any promotion whatsoever. Even in the grassroots level, facilities are there, but even the interest so much is there. You know, there's that competition, there are those pathways, all the structures. And it's taken work to get here, but we forget that the women's team hasn't always had this. The women's structure itself hasn't been there. So a 14-year-old boy would have played so much more cricket at a decently competitive level than a 14-year-old girl. And that gulf is not something that is just going to go away. 
the sponsors may come, there might be interest, which is happening slowly. But you know, these structural inequalities are also there on one side. And on the other side of the elite program at the BCCI level also, there are these inequalities in that. Again, as I said, the men's team doesn't need work. The women's team needs work. So we need to put structures in place where you're able to showcase the sport as something that is valuable to fans, to society, to sponsors, and to the board's uh, finances itself. I think this is a good time to segue into your book, The Fire Burns Blue. Being a sports fan, I've read more than my share of sports books. And I honestly must say that the Fire Burns Blue ranks among one of the best. And I'm not saying this because I'm interviewing you. I'm saying this for a few reasons. Just the amount of research that has gone into it and the storytelling. I think it's definitely a book that one can reread, which automatically makes it a really good book. It's also a magnum opus of sorts. How do you even start working on the book? Thank you for all those lovely things you said about the book. The book started off as an idea by my co-author, Siddhanta Patnaya. Siddhanta and I worked together at Wisdom and with the Wisdom Almanac as well. And both of us were interested in sort of grassroots cricket, women's cricket. You know, the more human side of things. So India playing England was great to watch, but I don't think either of us felt that we had as many stories to tell about it rather than, you know, say six years ago from where Pratisha was coming from or what Miss Raj was going through to get to where she was. Yeah, so we'd always had these conversations and we'd done these stories for Wilson. The book itself, we'd been, Siddhanta first and then together, both of us, we'd been trying to get it off the ground for a while, but there wasn't as much interest. After the 2017 World Cup, when women's cricket really took off, that was when we got publishers coming on board. Actually, even during the competition, a few people, a few publishers reached out to us well before that. We'd been trying to reach out to them. Once we got the all clear from them, we started doing a bunch of other interviews. I think we spoke to around 100 odd people for the book. And within, I think, about 10 months to a year, we'd finished writing and publishing it. Again, a lot of it was based on work done many years before and sort of this domain expertise that we got. Yeah, it all came together. We wanted to do something that combined the social aspects of women's cricket as well as, you know, we wanted to treat it with the rigor of sports writing. So there were a lot of these records that women were involved in that no one knew about and we wanted to be that record as well. And we were building a lot of what we did based on oral history. So given that there was so little material available either on film or in writing, newspapers, magazines, there was so little available and very patchy. So a lot of it we had to depend on people's memories. So what we wanted to do essentially was to be the starting point of all conversations for women's We fully expected you know, once this was on paper, more people to come and tell us, no, that was not how it happened. This is actually how it happened. And we'll be very happy to be corrected because I think, as I said, this is the first draft. Hopefully, there will be more people building on this. Over the years, women's cricket has had many supporters. One interesting tidbit in the book was about how Infosys actually stepped in and helped the team. 
and you also write about how someone like a Sharad Pawar has done his bit to help women's cricket in general. Usually when we hear about politicians and sport, it's always in conjunction with them wanting to be connected to the game because it brings them some amount of fame or publicity. In your experience and in, in all the people that you've spoken to, who are some of the people who actually helped women's cricket get to where it is? In terms of politics, I think sport uh, in India and especially cricket have been very closely linked with people who also have background in politics. Even at the grassroots level, so if you have some small tournament being organized, it's very likely that it's been organized by these local, you know, administrators, local leaders who want to sort of amplify their profile a little bit. It has its pluses and minuses. Um, there have been multiple politicians that, it, especially in recent years, women's sport and women's empowerment has been seen as a useful bit of success that they can claim. So if they get it done, they can say, you know, we did this for women. It works. It's great. So even in terms of something like uh, the contracts that came in for the Indian women's team. You have someone like Anurag Thakur who was heading the BCC at that point, being able to take a lot of the credits for it. Even though obviously there's so many other people that have worked to get it to this point, but at the end of the day, if there's someone who wants to put his name on it and they claim, I mean, I guess that's how a lot of it has worked for many years. But outside of politics also, I think there are lots of people that have been quite selfless in bringing the game to where it is right now. Infosys that you mentioned was quite by chance. I I don't think it's uh, something they go about advertising either. They just have an incredible campus in Mysore and it just so happened that things came together. And before the 2005 World Cup, which India, as you mentioned, went to the final end, it was just a chance for the girls to go and practice and train in that sort of system. And I think they still talk so passionately about that time because it made such a difference to have these. Now, of course, BCCI facilities also are really high standards. So, you know, that sort of help is maybe less. In terms of other names that I can think of, a lot of the pioneering women, especially someone like, you know, Shibangi Kukani, made sure that Infosys link-up happened, spent so much of her own money in running the sport. Uh, to make sure that the girls get what they need. A lot of these pioneers that have, you know, put their personal lives on hold pretty much to, you know, look for the welfare of others. And even now, you know, you, a lot of the discovery or scouting system that's there in Indian women's cricket is because there are a lot of these former players who are still involved in their local grounds, academies. They see some talent and they say, no, no, you should come and play. That's how so many girls get jobs because they get recommended by these senior players, you know, to be part of railways or whatever, who is the only employer for female visitors in India right now. And of course, you have the families themselves. So, you know, a lot of grandparents, grandmoms, moms, dads, who are so encouraging of young girls. You know, some of your listeners might know about Shafali Verma's dad, who sort of, you know, encouraged her to cut her hair and, and play cricket with the boys. So, I mean, I think the girls who have got this bar have come far because of incredible family support, and I think that's pretty uh, special as well. You also write this bit about what Mandira Bedi did to popularize women's cricket. And I still remember the, the 2003 World Cup, where... She was propped up as something else. Here is this really smart woman who I think the broadcasters didn't really know how to use. It looked like they just wanted a woman figure and she was put there. And of course, thankfully, this was 
way before social media came into play so you didn't have people passing all sorts of comments on twitter can you just tell us a little more about the role that she played i did right i, I remember watching manira bedi and as someone who is a girl who enjoys sports and watch sports i was pretty annoyed that you know that the only woman they had there was someone you only talk about her for what she was and i think it was very hard to get away from the fact that she was really sexualized almost in being there and again as someone as a girl who was watching sport that made me terribly uncomfortable and maybe to an extent resentful also you know <laughs> looking at someone like her but then she has a really interesting story of how she became involved with the women's team at that point in time purely from a very uh, like it's not like she wanted anything back at all at that time it was just totally her giving to the sport at the same time that infosys got involved when shubhanki kulkarni was trying to get everything in place so that the women's team could have a good shot at the 2005 world cup you had mandira bedi coming in and using her profile to build you know to get sponsors at that point of time i think there's a story where she did a few ads with the condition that they that the money goes to the women's team uh towards their campaign for the world cup and uh, she was just this incredible champion and i think at one point you know you need a face you need a popular face that can actually go and completely champion these players and i think how she got involved as well was very by chance i think she was it was a rare bit of match that was happening on tv and she watched it and wanted to get involved and and yeah so i think there are lots of stories like this of small people that small involvements of popular people celebrities and regular people that have dropped the game so far one thing that the fireburns blue does is opens our eyes to the number of women cricketers whose stories have not really been told and since they didn't get the prominence of men's cricket a lot of stories would have actually not been shared if this book had not been written in that regard i just want to touch upon the chapter titled miljul which is on the partnership of mitali raj and julan goswami over the years can you just tell us how much their partnership means to women's cricket Mithali Raj and Julan Goswami are absolute giants of the game. I don't think even today we truly recognize how significant it is that India has the highest run getter in women's ODIs and the highest wicket taker in women's ODIs. And this is a feat that if it was, I guess, the men thing who have been brought up, you know, every two days. But they've done plenty to raise the profile of the game in society. Until maybe about three, four years ago, if you asked any girl who was just coming up, who is your idol? They'd probably say Mithali Raj if they were a batter and Shulan Goswami if they were a bowler. Now, of course, you have Harman Preeker and Smriti Mandana and you know, a whole lot of others that people aspire to be like. But at one point, it was just Julian Mantali. And uh, again, a lot of serendipity in their story as well. Uh, one of the stories that you know shared very often about them is how Julian Goswami, first time she bowled to Mantali, she got her out for a duck. Which is again like a creamy red thing, and because this is when both of them were in their teens back in the late 90s. And at every stage. After that, they really lifted the team up to 2000, 2005, the World Cup that was spoken about a fair bit. Nidhali played one of, you know, an all-time great innings with injured knee. And uh, that knee since then has given her trouble. But she held up despite all that pain and managed to. And Julian had an incredible World Cup then as well. In 2006, 2000, yeah, 2006, I think, when India went to England. She had a fantastic time at the test. I'm really looking forward to them playing test cricket again this year because I think both of them deserve 
to have so much more against their names, especially in Tesla, you know, such an honor, and they really deserve that honor as well. Can you tell us a little more about your partnership with your co-author Sadanta Patnayak? How did you meet, and how did you decide to work together on this book? Sadanta passed away from cancer. Uh, couple of years ago in uh, 2019. The book was his idea, quite honestly. I mean, it's something he's wanted to do for a long time. And we worked together on multiple projects. We were colleagues, obviously, we became friends after that. We worked on the, with an almanac a lot, with Suresh Menon, uh, who is the editor. And that gave us an opportunity to tell, as a lot of these stories of the grassland, there was someone who would speak to players about four years before they got into the Indian team. And he'd speak to their fathers and their you know, mothers and their families and coaches. He'd go you know, to their home in the small you know, tier two city somewhere. He was very driven by cricket. He, even when he was in the hospital, I think he asked the doctor for another 10 days so that he could write a little more on cricket. And, you know, came straight up the ICU, still in the general ward, I think. He wrote about 1,500 words about Hanuma Vihari. And said, you know, cricket was something that really kept him going. We worked together really well. We worked together on multiple projects. And this book was a culmination of a lot of things that we were working on for about five, six years before that. As a sports writer, what made you geared towards covering and writing about women's cricket? The reason I'm asking this is because like men's cricket gets a lot more eyeballs and there is just so much attention on it. It would have been very easy for you to say, okay, I'm going to cover men's cricket. There's a lot more games to write about. But you chose women's cricket. Why exactly did you take the road less traveled? For me, it was very organic. I love sports, but I was never the biggest cricket fan. You know, I can't list matches off and records. I enjoy the human element of all stories of being able to put people in context of society and looking at sport as something, as a part of something bigger. And I come from a background in journalism, so I was able to put those two things together. Women's cricket, and you're right, most people, I think, who get into the sport begin because they just love watching cricket and they want to be there when all these big events happen. And I'm lucky that I was at a lot of these big men's events as well. But because there weren't so many people interested in working in women's cricket, I veered towards that direction just because it seemed, you know, it aligned with my interests and there was no one who wanted to do it at that time. So I was like, yeah, I put my hand up and said, I'll do it. So I just ended up doing a lot of the assignments that no one wanted and I've kept at it. Let's fast forward to a few years from now. You are writing the sequel to The Fire Burns Blue. What are some of the changes you would like to see in women's cricket and what would you want to write about? You can let your imagination run a little wild here. So the last two, three pages of the book were written about the last time the coach got changed and, you know, how just months after Tishara Rodhi was brought in, again in controversial circumstances, then he was kicked out and Ramesh Babar brought in and again, you know, he being kicked out. And two years later, we're still talking about that. I would really, in five years and ten years, not have to be talking. I, I don't want to be talking about this. This is not the kind of professionalism that anyone wants to be writing about. So, I think I'd like to write about how it, you know, the system has become more transparent and proactive, you know, and just reaching for something bigger. I like to be able to, be able to say that India have obviously won a World Cup. It would be nice to write about them winning something for a change. I hope I can get write about a women's idea. I think it's high time that, you know, that's been put into place. We can see what it's done for players 
in other countries and I think we're really missing a beat by not having it in India. Yeah, globally, I'd love for there to be more competition. I think right now, if I, anything I write, I'd be writing about how Australia are doing a great job and England are trying to catch up. In a couple of months, I think we'll be seeing a new competition in England called The 100, which uh, really prioritizes women as in it elevates the women's competition and tries in multiple ways, not fully financially yet, but in many ways to present them at the same level as the men and bring this sort of equality. And I'd love to see that equality extend to other nations and other competitions as well. I think uh, the scope for women's sport and especially women's cricket is massive. We've seen that in the last few years itself, especially in football and basketball, how they've been incredible vehicles for change for women and sport itself. And yeah, it's just going to be cricket's turn next, and I'd love to be able to write about it in the next few years. Let's hope these changes don't take 10 years to actually happen, as well as the book, uh, looking forward to a sequel much before that. One question I ask, all of my guests. The podcast is called Coffee by Two. Are you a tea or a coffee person? Uh, the pandemic for the first time in like three decades has made me both. I have both coffee and tea now. An equal opportunity beverage drink. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karunya, for coming on the show for the second time and sharing your thoughts on women's cricket. Thank you for having me, Pavan. You can check out the show notes for the show at thecoffeebytwopodcast.wordpress.com where I write about my guests. You can leave your feedback for the show on any platform where you listen to this podcast. Thanks for stopping by for some coffee.